The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello. We'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Gil was going to start us off, but uh, he'll show up in a minute. So welcome. Thank you all for coming out on a beautiful Sunday. It's great to see uh, such a great turnout. Um, My name is Jeff Harden, and uh, I'm the director of uh, Insight World Aid. And very happy to have you here today for this, uh, I don't know, this beautiful travelogue and pictures and stories. And uh, um, we want this to be informal and interactive, so if at any point you want to ask a question. Gil, would you like to say a word? So um, we have a few slides we'd like to show and some stories to tell, and uh, I want to uh, keep on track here, but you know, we also want to um, have it just kind of unfold for, you know, there's, there's probably about 12 of us that were on the trip <clears throat> and um, here, so, and we all have our own perspective and wonderful stories and all of that, so um, you'll, you'll hear some of those in I think I'll just have Gil say a few words. So it's kind of ironic to have a medical mission grow out of IMC and then have the head of it injure himself at IMC. (laughs) (laughs) We'd, (laughs) you know, we didn't. Don't, you, don't th- you don't have to go very far to see who needs help. <laughs> so um, it's a it's a really a, a delight and honor that this Inside World Aid has kind of grown up out of this uh, community here, and um, I like to see it as kind of one of the next important steps for the growth of the Insight uh, community here in America and the world. That uh, you know we're not that old. For what we're you know maybe. If, Depending how you count, maybe forty years ago, and uh, it got started, and and slowly it's grown and developed in this country and other countries, and at some point we became ready to look beyond the meditation cushion, beyond our centers, and to be citizens and contrib- uh, contributing to the world at large, and uh, IWA is such an effort uh, coming out of the inside community to. Uh, uh, express our practice and to uh, offer care for the world in the context of our insight practice and with other practitioners as well. And so it's a uh, new organization. It started about two or three years ago and did its first medical mission, as some of you know, in um, just in February, March in Cambodia. And uh, it was a great kind of uh, inspiration to have this first medical mission it was kind of like the beginning of something we planned for a number of years and actually see it come together. Uh, it was very meaningful. And now um, we have uh, something to show for IWA. And my hope is that uh, this then becomes an inspiration for a lot of people to um, do similar things, to come and join IWA, to support it. Um, I see that IWA has a tremendous potential to grow into if there is support for it. 
Uh, as you know, the world has a great need, and I think this growing insight community has a great uh, uh, goodness in it and a great capacity to offer support for the world. And so my hope is it becomes contagious that uh, the involvement with IWA and other people become interested and support it, and um, both in terms of their volunteering and going on medical missions here and also in this country. Um, the, actually, the first efforts we did were here, right? We went, we went to some medical fairs here in the Bay Area. And um, the success of IWA and how, how much we can grow into its potential is directly related to how people come forward to volunteer. I like to think that there's no them there. It's, it's all us. So it's those of us who step forward to help and support it, uh, both with labor and projects and inspiration and also with the financial support. And one of the possibilities for IWA is also to become kind of a, a, um, a channel for people who want to offer financial support for uh, really useful projects, uh, small-scale projects in the developed world, like in Cambodia, uh, that otherwise simply wouldn't happen. So it's a great thing, and I thank uh, Nancy and Jeff for their hard work to make this happen, and, and other board members, Linda and Gary, Gary is not here, and... Um, and many of you for our volunteers in various ways, and as those of you who went on the trip. Who went on the trip who's here? Isn't that impressive? Thank you all for doing that. Thank you, Gil. So it's actually uh, Gil's idea, and... Uh, Nancy and I and some others uh, thought it was a pretty good idea, too. So um, so I'd like to get on with some of the uh, the slides here. And I'm, I'm just going to present a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end and then also talk about um, our next trip, which is in, I think, less than six months. It's in August, end of August, September, for, to Peru is where Insight World Aid is going next. So, uh, But I'm going to have um, various other people from the trip present uh, aspects of it. But I just want to give a general introduction. And Gil pretty much um, talked about what this was, the, uh, where the idea came from. And um, those are some specifics. We just uh, we chose Cambodia, really. We had some connections there. And um, it's a Buddhist country. It's a country that's had, as many of you know, kind of a horrific past um, uh, fairly recently in the last century, and is just getting back on its feet, and it's really uh, um, amazing, uh, the spirit of the Cambodian people. So I started going there each year um, for the last, um, <clears throat> well, this is my third year in a row, going there to do the footwork and research and, and uh, find out um, how we could make this happen in a way that's safe and that doesn't create more harm than 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 good. And uh, when I was there last year just scouting around, it was kind of frustrating to find uh, groups to partner with that would really sponsor a, a large group coming in. And I, I didn't meet them when I was there, but um, I heard about them and then contacted them when I'm back. And um, this organization here, which stands for Cambodian Health Professionals Association of America, which is uh, centered in Long Beach, turned out to be a great partner for us. And we have uh, Terry Tan, who's on the board of uh, CHAPA, um, here today visiting. And she really uh, was one of the um, 
I guess, the key coordinators to make this, this amazing effort, which you'll hear more about, happen. But I don't know if you'd like to s- say a brief word or... or um, let's give it for that. I didn't... <laughs> sorry. Hello, everybody. Um, I, I just want to say how thrilled I was to have met, but unfortunately not get to know too well all of the IWA members because we had 173 volunteers and 60 students. It was really hard to meet everyone on a one-on-one, plus we were spread around a little bit and in different locations. But I, I just, you know, as I was sitting here, and this is all a surprise for me, I want to say that wisdom and compassion, which is your, which are your founding principles, definitely shone through um, of your volunteers that were in Cambodia. They were both wise and compassionate. Um, I did not, as I said, I may not know of you individually, one on one, but I know that everywhere I went when I met um, an IWA, it was like, oh, hi, you're the one that's been writing to us. That, thank you so much. I mean, they were so grateful, and I, honestly, I didn't get that from everybody, even though I know, you know, that they didn't have to say it either. And also to say how grateful they were they, for being in Cambodia and for serving the underserved population. So I'm very thankful that. They showed wisdom and compassion to all their colleagues and the people that they served. Because um, I lost my page, but the other, as, as Jeff was talking, uh, I didn't know you. It was your first mission. You were all such pros at what you did, and you know you just blended in with the culture and the community and and everybody. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you because as a volunteer, you often get um, attacked by negativism, but you were also positive, and I mean it at all times. And um, I, I, I just want to thank you. And Cambodian Health Professional Association of America is um, this was its third mission to Cambodia, but they've been existing for a long time. Except they didn't have a group ready enough or big enough to go. Now it's just growing like topsy. And hopefully, through your evaluations and the evaluations generally, we're able to um, provide a, a better mission next year. Um, I don't know what else to say, but if you have any questions later, uh, I, I would welcome them. And also the people that went to the Wat Opat, that, um, the orphanage, I want to thank you. That would not have been an easy trip emotionally or in any other way, but um, I know the children would have gotten a lot out of it, and as I spoke with you, and I know that you got a lot out of it. Thank you so much, because those children really needed you there. Um, thank you, Jeff, for... Uh, um, accepting me to come here today. I happen to be in the Bay Area with my daughter. And I said, if you're ever meeting up there, I'd love to come to visit you. And he said, oh, we're meeting today. So I said, (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I encourage all of you, if you ever get a chance either to go to Cambodia or any other country, it's it's really worthwhile just to let go and um, be with another culture. It's it's really lovely. And um, you make a lot of friends amongst yourselves over there and with the local people. And thank you again for having me here. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Terry. This is on. Thank you. Um, so uh, this trip, I'll just give some of the background for it um, or some of the logistics. We went for a week and did volunteering, and then we had a week of fun or sightseeing. And when you're in Cambodia, you have to see Angkor Wat. So you'll see some slides of all of that. Um, we also, the, really, the principle of 
Insight World Aid was not to do the work out there, but to do also the inner work that's involved to to be um, practicing service in a way that's that's uh, optimally helpful and minimally harmful. And so we did quite a bit of meditation practice uh, on the the trip and um, learned on how how to do that because we at times we had a very busy schedule. So just as a reminder. Cambodia is this country right here, Southeast Asia, next in between Vietnam and Thailand. And then where we, uh, we flew into Phnom Penh, which is the capital, and then the first week we spent uh, volunteering in a, a clinic in Takao, which is a, uh, one of the capital prov- uh, provinces. I think there's like 13, I, f- I can't remember how many provinces are, but so we're at a hospital. You'll see some scenes from that. And then the orphanage, the Wadopat Orphanage, which eight, eight of our volunteers were at. So 16 were at the clinic and eight went to Wadopat. Uh, it's kind of in between Phnom Penh and Takao, right about here. It's... It's, it's rural, so it's not on this map. And then after our week of service, we went back to Phnom Penh for a couple of days and then up to Siem Reap, which is where Angkor Wat is, and then and back to Phnom Penh and flew out. So that was basically our itinerary. And we had many uh, friends and sponsors along the way. Of course, here's uh, Chapa um, and their logo, um, which the trip would not have been uh, possible at all if it wasn't for them. I certainly couldn't have done all those logistics and did a wonderful job at uh, you know, organizing such a large group of people and feeding us and housing us and keeping us safe. And I mean, it was really a, a phenomenal labor of love. And then um, I won't go through all of our partners, but uh, just the uh, yoga source, Los Gatos. Uh, Linda McGrath, who's on the board, has been a long-term sponsor, well, long-term. We've only been around for... Uh, two and a half years, but from the beginning and has uh, had a lot of f- yoga fundraisers and donated a lot to, to keep the organization afloat. And also these beautiful t-shirts. Um, we didn't want to spend donors' money on this and we didn't want to you know, have people going on the trip uh, pay for these shirts. Um, so she came up with the idea that she designed the logo and then uh, ordered them and paid for them as a, as a donation for the volunteers to have something nice to wear. So we're very appreciative for Linda's great help. Um, yeah, and of course, our parent, Insight Meditation Center. I don't know if they have a... I, IMC has a logo. But... Of oh, a lotus leaf, okay. Oh, oh, yes, okay. I'll put that on the next iteration of the slide. And then there are many people uh, who d- donated um, since we started our Friends of the Trip campaign, and here's, here's the list of them. If, you're, if you donated and you're not on here, I apologize. I tried to... I'm springing a leak here. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm icing my knee because it's... Uh, okay. And then some special thanks um, for people who really helped the trip. Kind of the top of the list is my wife, Jenny, who's right here who's really uh, done quite a lot. And then Nanette is our um, communications person. Brian McKinsey's in the corner there uh, video recording this. We have a YouTube site, so this, this presentation, all of our presentations are available in video and audio. And then Nancy and, and Bonnie, you'll hear from her. And just many people along the way have made this uh, trip very um, 
feasible. And uh, our, these are our board of our direct board of directors, our advisors, and then uh, I know a lot of you followed along with our blog on our website and the Facebook page, and I am very appreciative for their efforts. We had a fundraising campaign. Um, everyone on the trip paid their own way. We don't offer scholarships, um, although we're going to start offering a way that people can do their own fundraising to help defray their costs, starting starting with the Peru trip. But um, we had uh, donations go... Oh, thank you. Donations uh, from this fundraiser that we uh, donated $4,000 to... Oops, pressed the wrong button there. $4,000 to um, uh, Chapa and then $1,000 on a special donation uh, to Wadopot. And um, we really uh, feel like the money was spent. You know, you'll, you'll see some pictures of, of uh, these, uh, the medications and various things that were distributed. And then my last thing I want to say is that uh, this is a box of vitamins, children's chewable vitamins, and a huge pre-trip effort that um, really rested on the shoulders of Terry. I don't know. Terry right there. So Terry agreed to receive a pallet of vitamins uh, at her house, and it turned out it was actually two pallets of vitamins, half of a ton, uh, that we were to transport to... um, Cambodia to you know to contribute. Everyone brought um, stuff in their suitcase, you know, medical supplies and medications. And so, most of Chapa was leaving from LAX. We were leaving, we left from SFO, so we had our own uh, uh, contribution with these vitamins. There were um, two hundred uh, thousand vitamins that should supply five hundred eighty-eight children with vitamins for a year for a full year. And uh, we had 22 boxes. We, we packaged them in boxes. And uh, Terry did a lot of this work, and we checked it in our luggage you know, as part of uh, our service. And there's the Vitamin Angels is the organization that had contacted CHAPA to, to uh, provide vitamins uh, on the mission. And it's really, uh, you know, when you see some of the pictures of malnutrition, you'll see the importance of, of this. So this is, uh, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Nancy. Do you want to sit in this chair? I can, I can, no, I, I don't, well, I can where would you like to be? Where do you want to sit? Why don't, why, why don't I, what, here, why don't I move? Okay. And you take this. And how, I, but how do I click it? Oh, that's forward. forward. Yeah. Okay. So hi, everyone. Welcome. And um, so I'm going to talk to you today a little bit about uh, the Takeo um, Clinic, where we, the largest group of the IWA volunteers um, served. So this is the scene at 6.15 in the morning when uh, I arrived every morning and and when everybody else did to come for breakfast and set up. But what you don't see here is you don't see that this line of patients goes all the way down the block, all the way down the next block, and around the back of the clinic. So it was a huge number of people waiting already very early in the morning um, to be seen and to get registered for that day. 
Uh, this is a little list. I'm not going to go through everything, but these are the kinds of patients that we saw treated, the variety of treatments that we provided. Uh, there was the Aloha mission that was also a subgroup. They were a surgical team that went, uh, and they provided many, many major surgical cases. Uh, so we were all... Um, amazed by everything that we saw. And many of the things that we saw regularly there in the clinic, we would see very infrequently here in the United States in our, in our regular practices. Um, this is our group, uniformed, ready, right after breakfast and, um, and meditation, ready to go for the day fabulous group of people. I would trust my life to these people. Wonderful, wonderful people on our trip. Um, so I loved, I love you all. Yes. Um, this is the challenge. Uh, Dr. Paul here is uh, the challenge of examining patients in a very public setting. <laughs> um, no private exam rooms, um, but he's doing his best. And uh, so it was definitely communal practice. Um, Ellen, one of our volunteers, doing triage and also uh, crowd control and management, but also love, compassion, and um, making those important connections that allowed the trip to function um, smoothly. Uh, Dr. Rob Negrin doing the um, typical configuration, the three-chair configuration, one chair for the provider, one chair for the tra translator, and one chair for the patient. And I must say that the patient's chair was never empty. <laughs> never empty. And then Sarah. Sarah was one of our volunteers, and she's standing by. Sarah is not shy, but Sarah could make anything happen. If you needed something, Sarah could get it done. Yeah. So I provided women's health care on the trip, and sometimes the perfect day would be there. It was the perfect day. And um, you'd get to uh, deliver a beautiful baby, babies in this case. There were two of them, twins, um, save lives, work with a bright and um, compassionate and lovely, energetic, smart medical student from Phnom Penh and, um, and, and just, just have the time of your life. Uh, and also have a baby named after you. So this is, this is little baby Nancy, the female, the female part of the, um, 
twin group. The other was a little boy. And uh, she's a hearty two and a half pounds in that picture. Absolutely. Eclampsia. Yes. Yes. Um, and then uh, Judith, one of our volunteers, uh, people waited in lines a lot, but time was never downtime in line. Something was always going on with our volunteers. They were People were practicing their English with the volunteers. There was uh, healthcare teaching that was going on. So uh, line control, line management, and line intervention was definitely a big part of the medical um, trip. Uh, as was loving kindness. Uh, Ellen had a wonderful bond with this young woman, and uh, she received this beautiful um, and touching letter written in English to her. So um, special relationships were definitely made. With that little girl, I really did so little with her. Um, she'd come in with family. They were treated... And then she was just there, and I was concerned she was lost. And it turned out she had this wonderful English. She must have a talent because she's only had it one, one year. And we talked a little bit, and then she found me two days later. And, you know, this could have been any volunteer. I just happened to look at that our paths crossed. But one of the things she said, she came on a day when I was feeling really discouraged. Like, is this compassion stuff enough? And, I mean, there were so many needs we couldn't meet, and everyone's exhausted. And what one of the things she said was, the whole family thanked me for my smile. And that it was such a gift, because she was saying that our message, or what we were trying to do, was really getting across, and that it meant something. So it just... Here you see um, Buddhist monks, and they were registering people. As you can imagine, with all of these hundreds of people every morning lined up around the block, um, crowd control could could have been a really precarious um, thing, especially standing out in the heat waiting. Um, but the monks helped with that, and they helped keep the order and uh, helped give people the vouchers so that they could um, be seen at the various stations throughout the clinic. And, and this was a free clinic that we didn't charge, uh, charge yeah. the patients? Yeah, completely free. Here we have Debbie, and she is um, demonstrating <laughs> the technique for taking um, a, a, the temperature. And um, so a lot of healthcare teaching went on at the triage stations with our um, registered nurses that were on the trip. Um, and again, Therese. 
she is um, she is doing entertainment value in the waiting section, but she is also doing high level international public relations. <laughs> Let me tell you, definitely, and she's a pro at it. Um, this is Eileen again uh, doing triage. Uh, at one of the triage sites. And uh, this is Dr. Kent, uh, Kent Wang, and he is uh, doing um, an injection for chronic pain, joint pain. And this is our mental health team, and um, at after I speak a little bit more, I'm going to turn it over to Porni, who was one of our psychologists, and she'll share uh, some of her reflections about being on that team. Um, and I'll just say, welcome to their very private space <laughs> on the portico next to the pharmacy. But you make it work. You make it work even doing mental health in those um, circumstances. Healthcare teaching, again, using whatever is available. Um, healthcare teaching. And uh, this is Porni uh, leading um, a mindfulness meditation for stress reduction. Group. This was at one of our mobile clinics there at an... Um, at an orphanage, and this uh, our Insight World Aid went there um, on the last day. We were part of the mobile clinic there, and so um, you see these nice buildings and these nice windows. But mainly, we were working outside at the actual Takeo clinic. Um, and lest you think at the uh, end of the day that this is the party tent and people are having after-dinner drinks, um, no, this was the big, red, sweltering, hot tent that our internists worked under every day. And our own um, Dr. Rob Negrin, professor of hematology at Stanford, is giving our medical students a talk on thalassemia. And he um, had the chance to see how many cases? Four cases, yeah. So give just, yeah, yeah. So um, maybe the that one most dramatic one you could just share. Do you have the mic? Just Just share that little experience. Thank you, Nancy. Um, so uh, we saw a, um, a young child, I think it was seven, um, who um, came to my mind because uh, this was a, a child the mother brought in and said that her, she thought she was evil because her children turned white and died. And what was really happening was that they had this disease called thalassemia, which is very, very common in Southeast Asia because individuals who um, have the thalassemia trait are protected from malaria. And malaria is very common in that part of the world. So when you have two individuals with trait of a child, there's a chance they could have thalassemia. And this child had a hemoglobin of uh, 1.5 grams per deciliter normal, so about 15. So this was the most anemic individual I've ever seen in my professional career. 
And uh, somehow through connections, I emailed my colleague in Stanford who told me about somebody in Thailand, who told me about somebody in Phnom Penh. We were able to get this kid uh, to see this um, hematologist in Phnom Penh. And I just got an email back uh, last week that the child had, re had received a transfusion and a splenectomy, which um, is one way to treat uh, this individual. So that was a very gratifying case to sort of see the full circle that, you know, perhaps in some instances there are some resources that we can tap into. Okay, so I think that's the last slide in this section, is it? Oh, no. Um, are this, everybody who's on the trip is laughing. Um, so these were our fabulous meals. Three times a day, we would gather and go through the line. They had three shifts of meals on half staggered on half hour basis and um, the chapa brought this wo woman who has a restaurant is it in Long Beach? Yes. yes and she had this outdoor kitchen and this army of workers and they would put on these fabulous meals for us three times a day and they fed all these people uh, it, it, it was an amazing, this was an amazing thing. So this is Porny going through the line. It was actually the most expensive part of our mission. I think uh, the food was $25,000. Yes, yes. And, um, and just to add to that, this mission, um, quote unquote, lost money, not made money. So, you know, in other words, we, we kept the fees to a minimum, but we ended up really paying so much in expenses. But, you know, that's fine. We, we raised funds from a fundraiser that covered it, but I'm just trying to tell you that. It's not cheap to run a mission, mm -hmm. and the food was the most expensive item. Yeah. And we were hungry. We ate a lot. <laughs> when you're working hard in the heat like that, you're, you, you eat a lot. And we all did. Um, so, in our last few minutes of this section, I want to turn it over to Porny. And um, where is that mic? Rob, you had it. And then also Judith, um, one of our other volunteers, is going to share some reflections. This was definitely um, a moment I can tell you um, from my own first experience that I very much looked forward to um, these delicious meals. And um, I think Jeff is catching me probably first in line because he trained me really well um, being a vegetarian. We tried to get to the vegetarian food um, right away um, so that we would have some food. Um, but it was just meticulously prepared and very delicious. So. Um, it's, it's surprising to hear ex how expensive it was, but I can say I definitely am filled with gratitude that we had um, nutritious food as much as we did. Um, so I'm a psychologist. I was part of the mental health team, um, as Nancy um, eloquently described. And there were, um, let's see, there were four of us and then two others. So there's a total of six of us, um, so four providers and two uh, medical students um, who went to medical school in 
um, Phnom Penh, and they acted as our translators. And one of them um, chose to, they could rotate through different clinics during the week. Um, One of them actually chose to stay in the mental health clinic the whole week through. Um, And she was, for me, one of the most um, surprising delights of being on this trip, quite honestly. Um, She, her, I think, perseverance um, inspired me to work hard um, at times when I really felt like giving up in, in the work that I was doing. Um, She wants to be a psychiatrist in a country that only has 48 psychiatrists and 40 psychologists. So um, if I was going through an uphill battle in a mental health clinic doing the work that I was doing, I was inspired by seeing the uphill battle that she was putting herself through um, to do the work that she eventually wanted to do. Um, It was... Of course, nothing like I expected it to be. Um, We had um, a psychiatrist, um, two social workers, and myself, and then, like I said, um, Niat, who was the medical student who stayed with us in Boré, who came in on uh, Wednesday, and we didn't let him leave, (laughs) basically, from the clinic. Um, uh, He also actually wants to be a psychiatrist and is um, kind of fighting an economic and... uh, academic battle um, trying to pursue his his dreams there. Um, So uh, a couple of us on the team are trying to figure out a way to get him the training, if there is a way to get him the training to uh, pursue this this dream of his to be a psychiatrist. Um, Most of our cases, uh, or all of our cases, I should say, were referred by our primary care team. Most of the cases that I saw, and I think I could safely speak for the mental health team, were anxiety-related, including uh, trauma, a a lot of generalized anxiety disorder. Um, There were some uh, phobias, very specific phobias. Um, I saw a lot of cases of blood phobias. Um, And then uh, some trauma. I think a lot of people, um, including myself, thought I was going to see a lot of trauma related to the killings. Um, and that was not my experience. Um, a lot of the trauma that I um, heard about was trauma related to either uh, personal injury or uh, personal violence that they had incurred upon them in more recent times. Um, and uh, there was a lot of cultural norms. Of course, the work that we were doing, we could not have done um, without a translator, and that was the case at times. Um, like I said, we had four providers and only two translators, and so sometimes that was dropped down to one. So oftentimes we were kind of just waiting for translators to be given to us so that we could see more people. And there were definitely patients to be seen. Um, so it was just a matter of kind of resource sharing um, you know, with other clinics and other teams that needed um, translators more direly than we did. Um, uh, I saw some depression cases, not that many. Um, and the, there was a poster that Nancy went through um, that had, it was right after the mental health team slide, um, that shows actually this one right here. Um, let's see. Yeah, this is um, negative forms of coping with stress. And there were five posters, actually, that were placed um, up on a wall on the first day of the Tekeo Clinic. And 
I actually didn't know if there was going to be a mental health team um, going into this. I had hoped for it. I had kind of heard that there was going to be a team, but um, didn't really kind of get a good sense of what that group was going to consist of. And it was on Monday morning I saw these posters being put up on the side of um, next to the primary care clinic, and I went over to two ladies who turned out to be part of CHAPA, and I, and I said, you know, Hi there. <laughs> I'm wondering what these posters are about. It was positive forms of coping, negative forms of coping, how stress affects your body, um, and so forth. And, and they said, well, we're, we're putting these up because we're hoping to talk to patients about mental health care issues. I introduced myself as quickly as I could, <laughs> made friends with them, and I said, I'd love to work with you uh, in any way I, I could. And that was a really big highlight for me of the trip, was um, finding kind of a professional home, if you will. Um, and it was great to have these posters. I can't tell you how much of our work was providing psychoeducation around how stress affects the body. And there was another poster that literally pointed, it was a human body, and it pointed to different ways that stress affected it. And that was oftentimes the symptoms um, that were seen in primary care that brought a referral to mental health. Um, so heart palpitations, sweating, um, kind of diffuse chronic pain, um, headaches, and uh, we would talk to them about, you know, negative forms of coping, how stress affects the body, and then more positive forms of coping that were culturally uh, relevant. And um, th these posters are also great because for uh, women around about mid-40s and above, there was a pretty high degree of uh, illiteracy that we were noticing. So having pictograms um, was very helpful. Uh, for men, that actually wasn't the case. Uh, men seemed to have more uh, a higher uh, rate of literacy um, for the older population. Um, but uh, it was um, it was it, these posters definitely helped to kind of convey in a way that was that they could understand, you know, uh, and that we didn't feel like we were imposing um, our own cultural views on them, but instead it was a way of really connecting. Um, and I, I think lastly I can say that for me it was really about the connection that I was making um, with my patients um, as well as helping the medical students feel connected with the patients. Um, that was a big part of a uh, big uh, moment of inspiration for me was seeing my medical students connect with the patients in a way that um, I felt like was going to be more sustainable over time. And so in mental health, there's always this very golden rule that you sit very directly across from your patient and you make eye contact. And um, I had to let that go um, in a way that I never had, to, never had before. And I actually chose to have my translator sit directly across um, from my patient. And um, initially there was a lot of deference and... Um, and not wanting that. There was a lot of, like, doctor, you're, you're supposed to be over here. And I was like, well, you're going to be a doctor, too. <laughs> and you're going to be here much longer than I'm going to be here. So I opted to have my medical student sit directly across from, it, from the patients. And then I chose to be, as Nancy was pointing out in the triad, I chose to be off on the side. Um, and so I had kind of diagonal contact and then side diagonal contact with my patient and side contact with my um, medical student. And after a while, I saw that this became a lot more easy and a lot more comfortable for my medical students. And um, 
you know, doing a psych intake, there's, you know, just a routine that happens, and um, they got really familiar, and there were times when I was being pulled away to, you know, take a phone call, because we were also trying to access resources for patients, and we're trying to do that on the side, and um, they didn't miss a beat. They just kept going, and they brought the next person in, and they sat down, and by that time, they had kind of a routine on, on how to treat, you know, depression and anxiety and trauma and sleep uh, issues and um, and uh, stress reduction and, and so forth. So I felt really good about that um, because we were providing mental health care on a one-session basis only for the most part. And um, being able to see that maybe they wouldn't have continuity of care with our medical students in the Takeo Clinic, but that um, there were medical students that were being trained to provide uh, mental health care potentially in the future for Cambodians um, was really, for me, very uh, um, gratifying. Um, so I uh, wanted to end on that. that Great. Thank Thanks, Pourney. because of the 92 um, graduates from the medical school in the last three years, 90 went overseas. So Cambodia is not retaining its doctors. So this team is providing an incredible service because through example, they are more prone to be staying in their own country. So I'm sorry to interject, but I just thought what you said was was really, really important. Also, we had uh, 22 students who were trained to do prosthetic arms. So I was in charge of the prosthetic arm project as well, and we trained 22 medical students, not at the Takeo Clinic, but they were at the Sensok International University in Phnom Penh. And the first day we opened to the community, we had 25 people come to have a prosthetic arm, including a 10-year-old, on his own because he had no transportation or anybody to bring him there. So all each of the students had a chance to... to um, put on an, a prosthetic arm. So this kind of links in with all the, the student uh, situation and the uh, graduates who are indeed going overseas. Thank yeah. you. And, and I'll just reinforce that with um, sort of our belief, our mission is to create um, sustainability in all of our, all of our pro- projects. So we hold that very high. Um, in our goals. Now, where's Judith? Because... I think we have to move on to one of We're running behind. Oh, okay. Can she say one... I want her to share at least one thing, one reflection. Do you have my photos? Any other photos that I... I never received them. No? Oh, okay. Um, well, um... I guess I would say that I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I got there. And um, so that was quite a journey. And I had wandered around. It was kind of chaotic that first day. And I happened upon the waiting area, or you call it a waiting room, but it was really a waiting area. And I saw that they could use some help there. And I decided that was my spot. And I stayed there for the rest of the week. I mean, you wouldn't think it would be so exciting to be at a waiting room. But can you imagine 200 Cambodians uh, crowded in, a, in the sun underneath an awning for uh, that entire week? We put 200 people through there constantly, keeping the, the place flowing. And later on when I came home, I learned about a film that was done in, and uh, was voted by the San Francisco uh, 
Foreign Film Institute to be um, the best documentary of 2012, titled The Waiting Room. <laughs> and I learned so much that week. It was so rich, and I had just such fantastic interactions with those moving crowds of 200 people. And that film was done in the emergency room of the, um, the emergency department of uh, waiting room at Highland Hospital in Oakland. And it's very impressionistic. And that was really my experience. It was so rich yeah. and so impressionistic. Yeah. A lot was going on with the volunteers and the people in the waiting times. Okay, so I'm going to turn it over to Bonnie now. And she is going to talk about water pot. Sit down here, okay? I'll put it on this here. And that one advances. And I'll take this one and walk around. Okay, hi everyone. Um, I didn't know I was going to be doing the slide, so bear with me. Um, For the sake of time, I think I'm going to truncate some of the history uh, and get to the heart piece of what Wattopot, the experience meant to me. Uh, this, well, let me go back for a second. This motto really captures it, doesn't it? And this is, I um, can't remember exactly where this is printed, but it's the theme of this children's center, and you'll notice it's called a children's center, not an orphanage, because this is not a place where children are adopted. But the things we've gone through together... And this is a, uh, not a recent picture, but we do recognize a number of those kids uh, who currently are at Wattopot. And Wattopot was founded about 18 years ago by an American man named Wayne Mathesis. And, he, and uh, uh, he himself had been in the Vietnam War and was half-blinded when trying to save some of his buddies in his uh, troop near uh, Da Nang, and he's the only one that survived. Uh, he became half-blinded, and as a result of surviving, it was a real uh, spiritual experience for him. He knew at some point he wanted to find his way back to uh, Southeast Asia, and where he landed was in Cambodia, and he first volunteered for a Catholic charity agency, and there he met a Cambodian uh, whom he befriended named Van Dien San, and together they formed uh, an NGO called Partners in Compassion. And Partners in Compassion started as a hospice. Uh, they had found the... Let's see what the next picture is like. Okay, I'll wait for that one. They found... Um, or they were donated property by... Um, a Buddhist temple called Wadopat, thus the name of the children's center was called Wadopat. And um, originally it was a hospice for the dying in the community. Children as well as uh, adults came there. And this was long before any anti-retrovials uh, came to Cambodia. Um, in uh, two... Let's see. In 2003, Doctors Without Borders uh, was looking for a spot in Cambodia, and they needed to 
they wanted to donate their medicines, and they actually turned to Wadopat because they already had an established clinic. And Wayne, which I forgot to mention, was a marine medic. So he's honed those skills, and he's now Wadopat's nurse. Um, so once that got underway, it became clear that people stopped dying of AIDS. In fact, AIDS is not one of the primary reasons how people die in Cambodia. It, it went from looking like it was going to turn to sub-Sahara Africa, and in fact, it's fourth or fifth on the list of how people die. So they then uh, branched off, and Vaughn went on to and continues to work in the community, providing rice and support in mental health ways and community service ways. And Wayne converted this hospice into just a children's center. When we were there, there were 51 children and about 10 other adults floating around. And um, what you can't even um, see when you're there is who has AIDS and who doesn't have AIDS. 80% of the children there are affected by AIDS in some way. Uh, 50% of themselves have, I'm sorry, not AIDS, HIV and or AIDS. 50% have HIV. The other 30% have had of the 80, uh, have parents who are either dying of AIDS, have HIV, and can't take care of their kids, or they have died of AIDS. And another 20% aren't affected at all by AIDS or HIV, but their parents have died in other ways. For example, there are three boys there who both parents have been electrocuted, one by lightning and another one, the father was an electrician, he, was, uh, he, he died that way. So it's extraordinary, and what makes Wadopat so unique is it's the first place in Cambodia where um, HIV children and non-HIV children commingle. And it, it's, it's always been Wayne's intention that he, he wants to, through education, he wants the world and he wants the Cambodians to know that it is okay to... Um, embrace children who have HIV. It, it is okay to um, commingle them with other children. And as volunteers there, other than seeing some sores in, on some of the children, you really could not distinguish between that at all. Um, my heart just cracked <laughs> in this wonderful way when I got there. Uh, prior to going, I uh, had in my mind, I, I needed to go with an idea. How was, how was I going to help? And we spoke with Melinda, the co-director. Uh, uh, Terry was our uh, liaison volunteer, and she she would be contacting her. Well, how can we best support you? Well, we and we looked on the website, and she, you know we saw. Well, there's arts and crafts, and I'm serving. Nope, don't have those skills. And and we, we do this and we do that, and I'm thinking, well, I don't have any of those skills really, but I used to be a child therapist. I love working with kids. And I thought, well, I'm going to think of a project and turn this project, if it ever comes to fruition, into uh, a fundraiser for Wadopot. So I thought of coming up with an idea of having the children uh, do some drawings of their experience before what their lives were like before Wadopot and what they were like after while they're at Wadopot. And as a grief counselor, I wanted to see if I could get them to talk about their losses. Well, uh, best laid plans. 
uh, that was not very easy. The, my interpreters were the children who spoke some English, so I don't know fully how much they knew and how much they didn't know, and then there were times when I didn't have interpreters at all. So some of the questions were more leading, like, this, did this make you sad? Which, as a child therapist, I would never lead in that kind of way. But the pictures were very touching and um, uh, really released some emotion from some of these children. And um, there was this one boy who's 15, and I could tell he really had suppressed talking about his family at all. But when I got him to point to people on his picture... Uh, he started weeping, and it was very, very touching, and that resulted in him feeling shame, and it took him a while to sort of come back again. Um, one of the... Well, there are many heartbreaking pieces to it, but heartbreaking in juxtaposition to the joy that I felt. One of the first questions the children would say was, uh, after they jumped all over you in a nanosecond of meeting you, was in their broken, wonderful English... Uh, when you leave. And then the next question was, when you come back. And this went on for the whole week. And um, uh, we, as a group, decided we wanted to be really clear with answering that second question, when you come back, that we would not set up any uh, false expectations. And uh, we did this throughout as well at the ending, and I'll let some of you share how that went for you when you said goodbye. You could, I'll let you tell that story more fully. Um, the other thing that we struggled with was, I think we all went with the mindset that, well, we're going to be told what to do. What will our jobs be? Even though we all kind of were saying, well, we don't really have skills in the areas they may need that, but that's okay, we'll learn and they didn't assign us any specific skills, and that's because, very intentionally because, volunteers come and go. And there are times when they have no volunteers. So if they had designated volunteer roles, that would not have worked very well. So there was a little bit of anxiety we felt with, what are we doing here? And you know, are we being productive? Are we being useful? And when Jeff... Uh, repeatedly checked into us, which was so helpful. He was like our guiding force, even via email. He said something really profound. It was either Terry or the other Terry. He said, just be. Just just let this be. And that personally helped me a lot to just let go. And Melinda finally articulated, you know, I just want you to be there for the kids. And that was exactly what I wanted to do. In this picture, you will see uh, Wayne giving the tour when the medical group came for one night. We had dinner there. They had dinner there with us. And Wayne is very proud. Um, he, I don't know if it's the next picture or not. I, I think it comes a little later. But there's a crematorium on the grounds, and it's pretty extraordinary. And the children are made, uh, they are incorporated into the ritual when someone dies, whether it's a, a parent, they're the ones that light the crematorium, or... Uh, this is a very natural, organic part of their lives, how to say goodbye to people. And this is the memorial, memorium where the pictures of the people who have died are housed as well as their urns, which you can't see, are kind of in the corner over there. This is Melinda, the co-director. You will always see Melinda, or in every picture you're going to see kids all over us. 
and she was absolutely fantastic. And she started as a volunteer two years ago, fell in love with the place, proposed to Wayne, I think I can help you. He's been running this place alone for eight, well, then 16 years. And boy, has he needed someone like Melinda, who at age 45 was a crackerjack and a multitasker and is ma, they are ma and pa to these 51 kids. And that's what they call them. Here we are, I think this, we were getting ready to leave, and this was a beautiful little meditation place where, uh, actually the one before, that's Melinda, sitting inside, and here we are outside. And that's the sign, I forgot where it was, the things that we do, have, have done together. It's the eight of us. And the little uh, drawings I was talking about, this is an example of the kids who were doing the drawings. This is Lauren, uh, who came the night with the, uh, the medical group, and this little girl's name was uh, Shrey Nay, and uh, Shrey Nay was one of the um, a real clinger and, and had this very infectious laugh. She laughed at absolutely everything. And I don't think we have a picture of it, but many of these kids have uh, lice, and Shrey Nay had a lot of lice, and we have a picture of what? Oh, yeah, she may not have known that. And that was a little bit hard because they're all over you. None of us did get lice. Um, but the children were like little monkeys. They'd sit in front of each other, the younger ones, although believe it or not, she's about 11 years old. And they would pick lice out of each other's hair. It was a really, it's just this very organic, friendly, cohesive community. This is, this is a family. You do not feel like you're in an orphanage. And this is G with, I don't know if you remember the little boys' names. You know, they, the, the sense of childhood just was a wellspring out of all of us. This is Emily um, with, uh, what was that little, Rajana, Ratana, and this other little boy. And you could see they just kind of mold into your body. They're just so appreciative of us being there. And this is Rick with one of my favorite pictures of the kids just all over the place. I bonded specifically with these last, these two to the uh, left of Rick. This is Chani and um, Shreylak. And um, Shreylak had beautiful English, so we got to know each other. And I was kind of a maternal grandmother to her. She was kind of holding my arm as we were leaving. And um, it was really hard to say goodbye to these kids. I probably cried for about two weeks <laughs> since when I was back. And tears can come pretty easily. And uh, I'll tell you a very quick story. Um, some of these volunteers come for, for a very long time. And overlapping with us were two German high school girls who were there for three months. And we were there during their last two days. And these kids, of course, if they bonded with us in five minutes, in, imagine what happened in three months. So they didn't say goodbye to these kids. They just did a, you know, kind of a wave. They didn't do kind of a verbal goodbye, but that was their, not their comfort level. And this girl, Chani, sobbed hysterically. I'm sobbing hysterically for her tears and others' tears. And she shut down for over 24 hours. So you do, you know, there was a lot of questions in soul-searching I've been doing about the benefits and non-benefits of volunteering 
internationally, but ultimately I've decided that it is more benefit because these kids who have had all these losses, it's an assault of abandonment over and over again to say goodbye to people. But I brought her out of it, and she was a sweetheart. And this is an older picture of Wayne uh, doing, and that little girl is now 14 years old. I forget her name. Uh, this is him in the clinic giving uh, the retrovi- antiretrovirals to this little girl. No, um, I don't think so. Maybe. I think that's her name. We do have other ones of Kunti coming up. And um, what was this? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, my, my Khmer is not very good to read that. <laughs> oh, it does say that in English. Okay. Cons- oh, okay. Yeah, I don't have my glasses on. Sorry. That Rick brought. It's, um, it's a picture of kids in, um, that I utilize. It's their different um, feelings or emotions. They could be moving, could be kind of shut down or underneath something. And I had it in English. And as Chris is in here, Chris had a friend in Bakersfield or Modesto or something. So I emailed her. She wrote it out in the Cambodian Khmer emailed it back to me and we kind of blew it up and pasted it on to the poster and then laminated it. And so, you know, I had an idea maybe, you know, they'd be interested in it, I didn't know, but I realized it's like, okay, they're just going to do what they want. And he just put it on the wall and every now and then I'd watch them with another kid just kind of pointing to something. And so I think we just looked at it a way for them to figure out how to get in touch with their emotions at, you know, some point to help them through a visual Lots of ponds at Wadopat. Thank you, Rick. And uh, these are real water lilies in their, in their little ponds. Oh, and that was our last one before we get up to that. Um, I think I've said enough. So it was an extraordinary, extraordinary visit for me. And the only way I've been able to really cope with coming back is I've already planned my next visit back, which is October. Okay. Did you want to say, we have G talking? Okay. None? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, um, I know uh, somewhat subconsciously maybe when I was preparing or thinking about going to this orphanage and um, you knowing that these kids, many of them had HIV and it used to be a hospice, there was this sense of that, oh, I'm we're going to be going into like a, a pit of suffering. Like this is going to be really hard, but this is going to be good work, and we're going to be helping people out. And what I found is that it was a happy place. It was uh, an opportunity for me to play with kids for a week. And I was just so touched by being around all these amazing little beings. And they're healthy, they're cared for. Um, it really is a, a family environment with uh, Melinda and Wayne, mom and dad, and they're like 50 brothers and sisters, and um, I can't even find the words to talk about how touched I was, how the, this kid, my own kid, came out, this kid I, I wasn't even in touch with anymore, just sort of bubbled forth, and it, oh, yeah. it was so much fun. Yeah. And um, 
my heart was just so touched yeah. by being with these kids and, yeah. and being with uh, my co-volunteers. I, um, it was very transformative. I, I keep telling friends of mine that uh, you know, I'm not sure what the kids got from me, but I know I got so much from them. It was just uh, heartbreaking and heart-growing. And Everything. It was rich, yeah. very rich. I feel very, a lot of gratitude yeah. to be able to do this. Thank you, Gene. Before we hear from Rick, just one sentence. I was so glad we had some males volunteer because watching the children interact with the guys, girls, and the boys was different in some ways than the way they interacted with us, and it just added to the richness. So I hope for future missions of people go to the orphanage that there's some men that go because, you know, uh, you two came alive, and they were just so much fun to watch, and I loved watching the kids interact with you guys in addition to us. And they love an iPad. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a couple games, especially one they won, and everyone's going for the iPad. And kids everywhere figure stuff out so fast. It's yeah. like, it takes us a while, for me as an adult. Kids, just, they start moving around, and they can figure out how to get into this program and that program. And um, I, th- I, th- I think, as G and Bonnie say, we learn... Um, it doesn't take much to put a smile on somebody's face. Um, I think for me, this really whole trip on many levels that I won't go into has been practice. And to go there and see how the kids work together, they're a baby of the three kids, and you'd see, you talk about a family, you know, the little girls would grab the 14-year-old, and the boys might do something, and they like were helping each other, and Every evening, what was it, 6.15, 6.45, meditate. This room, almost this size floor, they'd all sit down and they'd have their spot. And they'd be there and they'd be quiet. And, you know, they'd do a little chant. Um, you know, Wayne was open. They'd do a little Christian chant, a little Buddhist chant. And then let them figure out what they're going to do and how their life's going to be and how it's going to look. And he would just share story after story about how the kids got there and, and his own story. Um, he shared a lot. I have a little bit on some video, and it just it it as G said, it opens your heart, breaks your heart at the same time, and yet they just they lead. They'll tell you what's needed. We just show up, and and they would be there. And um, one of the days, um, they were taking a big pond and letting the water out into a smaller pond, and. We go there, we're watching them. Most of there were two girls and most of the boys, and they have their stick, and they were going to catch the fish, you know, hit them. And so they would either put some in the other pond or they're going to eat them. And so it's like, okay, that's one of the five precepts, do not kill another creature. <laughs> and, and yet you can't go in and change a culture. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I really gained yeah. going into a third world culture. Don't change the culture, because as the water was going also into the other pond, um, I'm noticing two of the three-year-olds start to walk down. And I'm going, okay, where are they going? And I'm realizing, you know, there's a couple other kids in there and no adults, and the three-year-olds are getting into the water. And I'm going, okay. You know, I'm just thinking, I'll get out of the water in our culture. And I'm just like, I became lifeguard for about an hour and a half. And or two hours, and what really touched me is Ratna. There was one of the little little girls. 
Ratna. And so they're playing, and the next thing she goes, she comes out of the water, takes her, her little dress off and you know, hands it to me. And then she's kind of in, and then she takes her pants off and hands those to me, and then she's back in the water for a while. And then she comes out of the water, and she puts her arms up. And I'm, I don't have any of my own children. I've never had children. And so then she puts her arms up, and, you know, I go over and get her clothes that I put on the tree. And then I guess, I guess we're going to have to go clean up. And then we go to the girl's dorm, and <laughs> we're getting a shower, and she's pointing out the shampoo, and we're shampooing her hair. And then another kid brings her her clothes. We get those on, and then she puts her arms up again, you know, to pick her up, and it makes me want to cry just thinking about it. Mm. And it was so touching for me. And then we're walking around. We go into the schoolroom, and, you know, you see the three kids and the little school teacher because they go during the day, and then they have school there for some of the kids. You know, and it was like, it felt like it was like 100 degrees. You know, a couple kids here. I don't know where everybody else was. They were probably, like, sleeping. And then she finally falls asleep on my shoulder and I put her in the bed and um, it's just, it's so touching. You know, it's like one moment the kids just grab and I would see how they would take each one of us at different times. Right. There was um, one boy, Sam Nam, who started, started to kind of get really attached to and I kind of had to watch it because I didn't want it to be and I saw the day that I was a little more trying to pay more attention to the other people, he was really upset with me and was kind of avoiding me almost to the whole day until the evening. And when we were leaving, he couldn't even say goodbye to us. So we were as a group, and someone said he couldn't even show up. So this is what the kids were going through. And he got to the orphanage. He was in another orphanage, and when they found out he had HIV at five, they said, we, can't, we won't take him anymore. He, had to, he went to Wayne. And people would come to this orphanage. I don't know the story that Wayne said. Someone from Australia wanted to give him $50 a kid so they could take him back to Australia. And he could then have people adopt the kids for fifteen dollars to $20,000. And Wayne does not put these kids up for adoption there. And they get three meals a day. They get an education. And one of the things in the community room, there's a sign the kids made, we are home, we are loved. Mm. So it's just um, all of us, I think, that went there is just touched in a way that, you know, you could never imagine. And, and I know I'll be going back. I mean, that's a decision that I've made that I will. So thank you, everyone. Yeah, I think we're done. Okay. Uh, hi, my name is Paul Linenfeld and the... Um, I'm going to be part of the sightseeing here. Um, so I was trying to think of what um, I could kind of convey that, that might allow you to take a little bit home. Is this the, okay? From this, so I have a little bit of a plan. You're going to have to indulge me a little bit. So I'd like everybody to stand up, and I'm going to actually pay, ask you to um, um, form pairs, like a dyad pair. But I, I'd like it to be someone you don't know or don't know very well, if that's possible. I realize a lot of people know here each other here, so. So let's do let's take a minute to do that right now. Okay. Is everybody paired up? Okay. So now I'm going to Is there anybody who doesn't have a partner? We might need to form a group of 3. Okay. So now we're going to learn two words of, of the Khmer language, okay? 
Um, and, and, and bear with me here a little bit. It's going to sound like three, but it's really two words, okay? So the first word is, is a very easy one for, I think, uh, English speakers. It's Sue. So imagine you have a friend, Sue, and I just want you to repeat Sue to each other. Okay. All right. Now, this is the second part of the first word. Now, I want you to, to kind of make the, the sound like a snake would make, like a hiss, hiss. Okay. Everybody got that? Okay. So now I want you to, 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 to use the snake sound, but I want you to drop the H so, so it becomes iss. Okay. So now you know one word of Kamai. It's suis. Okay. Now, now this is a little more fun. Now I want you to pretend that you're an Australian. And I want you to like put on your best Australian. Act. Is there anyone from Australia here? Because I don't. I, I don't. I, I. You know. I, I hope this does not offend you. But this is the best thing I can come up with. So I. You know. We, we've all seen. Most of us have seen Crocodile Dundee. I guess I'm dating myself. But I want you to do the good day, mate. Good day. Good day. Okay. So now I want you to take the day out of that and remember that. That's your second word. Okay, so day. It's not day, it's day. Okay, good day, good day, mate. Maybe I should have you actually demonstrate that. Good day, mate. <laughs> die. Okay, so that is the sound we're looking for. So, so now I want you to put them together. It's suis day. Okay. So, so you've just learned a portion of, a, of how to greet someone in Kamai, okay? So you've learned, you've learned the, the Kamai, but there's, there's a lot more to it here. So there's two more parts. One part, and most of us, I think it's safe to say, are, I have some Buddhist affiliation in this room. I, not everyone I know, but... So the, the next part is putting your hands together, okay? Like this, okay? So, um, and then there's also a little bit of a bow that's going to come with that gesture. So it's kind of putting your hands up and a little bow. And I'm told that the more... Respectful or venerated person, kind of the, the more impressive the bow. So, since we're strangers, maybe we should give impressive bows to each other. Uh, all right. So, um, and then the, the last part, this is my favorite part. Okay, this is the smile. Okay, and they don't do handshakes. This is what you do when you greet someone in Cambodia. So, it's a smile, but I, I, what I want you to do is I want everybody to close their eyes. Okay, and imagine. That you imagine somebody that you know who's really um, been a kind person to you, or a kind thing—an animal, a pet. Um, uh, you know, um, it could even be a special place that you're really fond of, and you have a lot of kindness in your heart towards that person. And what I want you to do is, say, let's say you haven't seen that person for like a number of months, and you're seeing them again—this really kind, um, uh, munificent person that's shown that's shown you a lot of love. Um, I want you to use the smile that you would have when you greet that person after not that person or that pet or even whatever it is that, that, that you're thinking of right now. I want you to use that smile when you um, uh, do this greeting, okay? So we'll, we'll try to put it together here. So it's like this. So everybody open their eyes and you can look at each other. That's part of it. <laughs> so do you all remember the yeah. words that come on? Suicide. No, this is fine. I'm, I'm so used to this. Don't forget your 
Okay, thanks. Okay, so, so really I think that's... I don't, I don't know what else to say. That, that That's one of the most beautiful things I saw in Cambodia, honestly. Um, so, um, all right. And there's, so, I don't really know where to go from here, but what I thought we would do is maybe open this up a little bit. And if, if people that didn't go on the trip could maybe ask us a, a question, and not a real elaborate one, maybe just a sentence or two, and then what I'm hoping is, is someone who went on the trip could maybe raise their hand and answer it. Um, I thought that might be kind of fun to do for a few moments. So does that sound okay? Okay. All right. So, and let's try to keep it. Um, I think there's going to be time for questions afterwards about the medical stuff and about the Wado pot. And maybe let's try to keep it about the sightseeing, the culture, the experience, or even maybe the experience of doing the mission, which we did first, and then we did the sightseeing part. So does anybody have any um, any questions about it? How did you get to Angkor Wat, and uh, what was it like to travel there? That's actually a great question. It's a great question. Who wants to answer that from our group? Okay. It was a very long bus ride. <laughs> there was three buses with you know, how many, 150 people or so, we all stopped at the same gas station, we all got off to have the same toilet experience, we all shared toilet paper, we bought, you know, the same little snacks, so, yeah, but it was a long bus ride. Our bus was serenaded by ukulele. Don't look out the window, if anyone goes. Because you'll be scared out of your mind. Well, actually, I loved the bus ride. It was a very, very long bus ride. But it was looking out the window was one of the most, for me, fascinating parts of, of the whole sightseeing and the whole journey was house after house after house. There were all variations of a theme. They all are on stilts because it's cooler underneath during the day. And they sleep up above. And some of them would have little businesses, you know, these little local businesses. And some would have, like, five soda bottles that they were lined up for sale, you know. Um, they all had a cow. The cows were very skinny. I've never seen quite so many skinny cows. They all had a haystack for the cow. They all had certain things. There was a bicycle. There were... Uh, but they were all variations on a theme. They were made of a little bit different things. And house, I just was glued to the window, house after house after house. It was just fascinating. Then there might be some fields that were... It was very dry, time of year. So it was, it, for me, it was a huge plus. I really enjoyed, even though it was a very long bus ride. Now, Robert, I'm going to ask you to clarify something, because I know exactly what you meant when you said, don't look out the window. Don't look out the front window. Yes. The so could you clarify that a little traffic. bit? Now, the side windows are fine. The front window is where all the, the cars are merging and traffic is going. Yes. I, I'd like to say one thing that um, I think this picture really uh, shows is that um, it's a very proud country and an incredibly proud heritage. And um, I, I learned a lot about Khmer history, Cambodian history, that I knew nothing about when I got there. And to think that this was one of the great empires of the world, um, you know, that's not the way at least I thought about Cambodia. And so that was really interesting to learn about the history of Cambodia. Right. I agree. I agree. I wanted to say one thing about Angkor Wat in particular. Um, there for, we, we talked to a group of our medical students about Angkor 
temples complex, and they all knew it very intimately. And, and, and I, we could be like, oh, I went to this temple, and I don't remember the name, and they would, they would jump right in with the name. Oh, you know, that was Angkor Kidae or whatever. Um, I don't think there's any equivalent to it in United States culture. There's no one place that we have that I think roots Americans to the extent that this does for the, for the Keimer people. And um, that was really impressive, and it was a, it was a heat for, for them. And these were medical students. I mean, my guess is a lot of them were financially a, a better off than most Cambodians. But it was a big deal to go to Angkor Wat and to have that opportunity. And I remember one of them even said, you never say you want to go to Angkor Wat, because if you say that, it might not happen. So it was a little bit of a superstition, but that's, that's kind of, you don't really publicize that because it, it, it might bring you a little bit bad luck there. So it's hard to imagine. It's it's amazing thing, but it's hard to imagine what this really means. I don't think we have a parallel here um, in America. Um, one more thing I wanted to say. Will someone comment about the spiders on the bus ride or on the, on the, one of the pit stops on the bus ride? Because that was there was a pit stop where we kind of did a bathroom break. And uh, does anybody want to talk about that? For sale. Yes. Well, they were amazing. They were beautiful, but it was tarantulas and locusts with peppers and locusts, uh, some other bug with curry. And um, I, felt, I felt at one point that I should try it. And I was so happy. Another friend came up and said, don't, someone in a tarantula and got sick, so I didn't have to do it. <laughs> All right. It was quite exotic. Does anybody else have any other questions about the sightseeing part? Any, anybody who didn't go on the trip? Or... Let me pass the microphone. To... Um, I wonder, the slide um, that's on the thing, yeah, are those water lilies? In the, the, there's a band of something that... Yeah. Oh. Okay, I just was, I came closer because I was trying to figure out what that was. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we had an earlier slide at the moment, but these are closed up. Hmm. Oh, okay, yeah. So this is actually Angkor Wat. Um, this is um, the main temple uh, in Siem Reap, and there's many, many temples around this. Um, It was uh, the largest Hindu temple in the world, and it still is the largest Hindu temple in the world to this day, to my understanding. Um, It was built, I want to say, in the 12th century. Is that that accurate? And at that that point, um, uh, Cambodia was a Hindu um, uh, um, culture at that point. At some point, Mahayana Buddhism came into Cambodia, and then Hinduism came back. And then now for many centuries, Theravada Buddhism has had a hold. but um, this is Angkor Wat, and this is a, a moat that was built around Angkor Wat. And um, from my understanding, this is actually meant to, I want to say is in Mount Meru, in, in Hindu um, mythology, this is meant to be a representation of that uh, mythical place, is my understanding. So, yeah, and I should probably advance this here. So, yeah, this was a kind of a comical... <laughs> <laughs> You're only kind of seeing one half of this because the other sign right behind this was like there was possibility of visit and then right next to it was way of visit. <laughs> so we don't have way of visit here, unfortunately. And then this is, uh, I, think, I believe, Bayan Temple. Yes, this was a, one of the kings um, basically um, 
built this amazing temple where there are faces of both himself and also Buddha. Um, and they're kind of up in the top story, and it's really amazing. Oh, okay. Okay, so the Buddha of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, um, also Guan Yin in Chinese Buddhism, right? The many-armed Buddha of compassion. And then that's our tour guide. This is probably... I would say Angkor Wat again. I think that's the moat behind us, and I think we're kind of coming in, and that's I think the causeway. I think on our kind of the your right, and um, yeah, this man was a very kind, um, very kind man, Mr. Sia. Yes, and he had um, grown up in Siem Reap. He had seen dramatic changes. He had lived through the Khmer Rouge, um, like most Cambodians. Um, he had had a few family members who were killed by the Khmer Rouge. That's almost, I, I would say, almost universal to say I had an uncle or a brother or a mother or someone that was killed by the Khmer Rouge. Um, he told me that his mom actually survived that because she was able to, um, she was a cook, so she would cook for the Khmer soldiers, I mean the Khmer Rouge soldiers, and that's kind of how his family got through that um, time. prison camp, and we met, there are seven people that survived the torture at the prison camp, over 21,000 people were there and died, and I don't know if we had that picture, Chun Mei, yeah, we do. and um, he was there selling a book and just talking, and we met him, and um, he's, he's in the center there, and kind of asked him, like, you know, what's, what's the one thing we should take away, and he goes, don't forget. Don't forget, because he was he was whipped with an electrical cord, had his toenail pulled out, and an electrical thing put into his ear, which sometimes, if he still gets hit today, he said just reverberates, and yet he doesn't stop. He's letting people know what's going on, and he was just a real lovely man. So this is that's actually how we began our whole journey, was here, and then going from there into the killing fields. Yeah, this is Toll Slang. This was a high school in Cambodia. And when Phnom Penh fell to the Khmer Rouge in 1975, um, they turned it into a prison. So this is, um, I believe it was also called S21. And um, basically, if you were deemed to be an enemy of the regime, and um, it didn't matter if that was true or not, you would go here, and you would be tortured until you wrote an elaborate confession, at which point you'd be executed. Um, And I believe the people you referenced that survived, they only survived because the Vietnamese army liberated this place and they happened to be kind of waiting their execution when the army showed up in 1979. So. That was the Vietnamese army after our war against Vietnam because in 75 hours was over. So it was Ho Chi Minh's army that liberated Cambodia. Yes, that was after the Americans were, we we were out of Southeast Asia for four years. And um, I I can, does anybody else want to answer this? I I want to, I can also answer it, but Ellen, yeah. Well, actually my family was an aristocratic 
from Cambodia, and we were searched to be eradicated, but we escaped. My family was so deep in political of both the French and the American um, government that uh, at the time, because of the power they had, and we were told uh, when I was a little child at three years old that to fly out the country, that the whole family should evacuate it. But my grandmother, she said, I won't leave my country. <laughs> this is, you know, she's running all these charity. She's always like this, anything that happens, the king can call her, and then she raised funds for all the poor, and she does so much good work. She said, who will do this work if I leave this place? Who will take my place? Who will have the courage? Who will do? And, you know, my grandfather was really an odd person for all the involvement and the government and things behind the scene. He was rescuing people who are wrongfully, you know, accused and to be executed. And then what he does is he runs an underground railroad and take those who are wrongfully executed, run underground railroad and take them out of the country to Thailand, to Vietnam, to whatever country he can get them to, and release them. So during the war, my family was actually hidden by the village people. To, they actually took us out of the country because on the town where we came from, where all the political power and all the people who knew who's who in the world was executed. And I mean, we literally, I remember as a child, when the execution began, that my family virtually disappeared into the village and they would hire us, I mean, never to be heard or seen of. That was like, we can't cry, we can't, only crawling at night. That's, I remember as a child crawling over a dead body, hearing execution, hearing that the people we knew were being executed daily, who was being killed because the poor that my grandmother has been supporting for years and all the peasants and things that she's been helping, they were saying, you know, you're in real danger. If they see any of you, they will execute you. I mean, they have no problem about executing any one of us, you know. So my, grand, my uh, grandparents, because of all the work they've done, the people hide them, and we actually crawl only at night. And then they underground us from village to village and took us out of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. The only reason, um, say, somebody you got a few others survived, he actually had to throw away his glasses because that's a sign of intelligentsia. He was a medical doctor, right? He just graduated that year, 75. Um, threw away his glasses um, because he was bilingual Chinese and Cambodian because he's many of the successful, well, many of the educated and business people were ch ethnic Chinese, not Cambodian. I'm not saying the Cambodian were more the farming, the, 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 the people of the land, but the intelligentsia, the majority, were, had some Chinese background. But anyway, he had to throw all that away, pretend he was a taxi driver and revert to Cambodian, which he thankfully learned because he lived with his um, uncle and aunt in Takel. He's from Takel, Bati. So anyway, so, um, and that's, the major, that's why the majority of intelligentsia were, were um, gone. There were two stages. One was under Nixon. That was pre-'75, in the 70s. 
And then, then of course, then 75, the Pol Pot to 79, and then um, the, the Vietnamese uh, liberated yeah. Cambodia. But the majority of the bombings were actually prior to Pol Pot. Yeah. I, I can actually speak to that a little bit. Um, But it was actually called Year Zero because every, the, the villages, the, the, the city was evacuated. Um, everyone left Phnom Penh. They were all they all headed north, south, east, or west, regardless of where their family was on that day. Dr. Tan was at the hospital. He had they pretty much had to desert the, the patients. Some jumped out of desperation from the second or third floor. Um, he went to his home. He, his, Dr. Tan's parents, he's the president of Chapa, his, his family had just left. He left them a note saying, where are you? I'm here. I just left the hospital. Well, he never saw them again. In 79, when he went back, that house was still barricaded in the same way with his sign still up there, and he grabbed a few mm-hmm. dusty old photos, whatever. He still has them to this day. But he never, ever saw his family again. So they all had to dissipate. In, within a 24, 48-hour period. The aristocratic and the who's who were privileged, many of them, to be, to be airlifted by the um, embassy helicopters and what have you out of the country. And if you see the movie The Killing Fields, it'll tell, it will give you the whole history. The reason I am so close to it is actually um, when I studied um, my PhD, I actually majored in Laos and Cambodian history and social political situations and, of course, my children are half Cambodian Chinese, so, but I, I, you know, I'm very close to this, and I know that we have Cambodian here who can validate that. But it's very interesting and it's very moving. Thank you for yeah. going to Cambodia. Yeah. Um, Mary, to answer your question, so, so the U.S. was initially bombing um, eastern Cambodia because the Vietnamese were using it as a supply base to fight Vietnam. And then um, that kept getting extended as they would drive them deeper and deeper. These bombing raids would just drive the Vietnamese military deeper into the country. And then what happened is the Khmer Rouge insurrection came, um, and the U.S. started bombing the Khmer Rouge. And that was more all over. I mean, if you can think of a noose kind of encircling Phnom Penh, um, that's what was happening. And these were carpet bombs. They were not the, you know, we read about smart bombs and all this. They they were B-52s flying in formations of three and... I believe it's something like it was five times the tonnage of the atomic weapons dropped on Japan were dropped on this country, and something like 600,000 Cambodians were killed. Um, to answer your second question, in 1979, um, Pol Pot was actually making these border incursions into Vietnam. He did not like the Vietnamese, and they were attacking Vietnamese villages inside Vietnam. And I have a friend from Seattle who, as a little girl, was in one of these villages, and she remembers having to evacuate because the Khmer Rouge were coming, and they knew this, and they would have all been killed. Well, Vietnam had a massive standing army left over from, from Vietnam War with America, and they said, we're tired of this. And they, in about two weeks, they rolled through Cambodia and liberated Phnom Penh and liberated this prison in 1975, or 1979, I'm sorry. So anyway, but let's get back to the trip. Okay, all right. All right. So this is the killing field, I believe, um, in uh, Chong Ek, right? Chong Ek. <laughs> this is us on the bus you were asking about. So. <laughs> yeah, the ukulele. And this is the meditation session. So. Uh, sorry to cut short yeah. that. So we want to also talk about 
Peru. And we'll have, hopefully, a few minutes at the end. So uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, meditation in various ways, written, pre-practice, um, daily sittings, um, readings. We had some guided yoga. And um, Nancy was, would hold uh, debriefing sessions in the evening since there was a lot of uh, certainly emotional content and physical strenuous of the clinic. Um, so that's just a example. Um, and, you know, it was hard at times to integrate, um, the, to find the time to practice. You know, things were moving quickly, especially at the clinic, or days that we took that six-hour bus ride to um, see him reap. But this is uh, one of our morning sessions, meditating. And we would finish each uh, meditation session uh, with a daily reflection, a poem or a quote. This is a picture of us, the, the Chapa group, um, in the uh, IWA group at the clinic, um, meditating one morning, and someone took a photo of us. We kind of, um, maybe we were a little odd that way, or we stood out because most of the people weren't meditating like that. And then uh, we finished the trip with a day-long meditation. We had this lovely apartment in uh, Phnom Penh. Uh, that a, a friend of mine has, and we, uh, in the morning we did sitting and walking meditation, and then in the afternoon we heard from these two women. This is many of you will recognize Beth Goldring, who comes here once a year. She um, she's really the reason why we went to to Cambodia is is her connections and and helping us. Um, she's a long term Zen uh, practitioner, a student of Gills. And she runs a nonprofit in um, Phnom Penh called Brahma Vihara Age Project. It was a hospice, and now they're branching out. Uh, as as we heard, the uh, antiretrovirals have kind of changed the face of AIDS uh, in Cambodia, as they have here. So they offer a lot of services for people with HIV and with with TB. And 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 then this is Stav Sotalis, who's the country director for Cares. Cares is a large international. Uh, NGO that provides uh, various support and <clears throat> it's her apartment so these two women uh, gave presentations on how they're both meditation practitioners how they do this work 24-7 you know they're full time uh, using uh, practices of mindfulness and compassion so it was a very and then we went around and people talked about what their experience uh, was on the trip so it was a very beautiful way to end the trip and now in our last few minutes <laughs> Moving quickly here, just want to tell you what's next. Um, we're uh, hoping to go back to Cambodia next year, but we have to, uh, t- the board has to um, meet and talk about that. But in the meanwhile, we're, um, we're going to Peru. And this will be a similar but different um, mission. It'll be a, a two week trip at the end of August. Um, the cost of this trip is a lot more expensive. Uh, Chapa, I think, really, my, my feeling was subsidized a lot. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been doing this mission work for a number of years and have never um, gone that, that cheaply, and that was really nice. But this trip, it'll just be um, primarily IWA people. There might be a couple other, but we won't be joining a larger group. So we'll have, to, and Peru is a more expensive place in Cambodia. So we'll. Um, uh, have everything included for the four thousand, and also, um, oops, unlike um, this trip where Chapa had a lot of medications and supplies donated 
uh, to them. We'll have to buy everything in country for the two main projects that we'll be doing. We'll be doing medical care at a clinic, and then um, we'll also be building solar stoves. The place we're going to is uh, 7,000 feet, and um, there's not a lot of wood there, so people burn garbage and tires and plastic and whatever, charcoal, whatever they can get a hold of. So part one of the projects we'll be doing is building solar stoves. So this will be a week of service um, and then a week of touring. And they don't have Angkor Wat in Peru, but they do have Machu Picchu. <laughs> so that's what we will do. And then we'll have a day-long retreat, probably on the coast. So we'll fly into Lima. And it's on the, the next. I just wanted to say um, we're going to uh, develop a way so people can have individual fundraising websites if, if you uh, need um, you know, family and friends and other people to support you in defraying the costs. We're going to uh, set that up. So Peru will fly into Lima, here the capital on the coast, and then go to Arequipa. That's the this is about seven thousand feet. It's very it's high desert, um, and uh, that's where we'll be doing our service, and then uh, for a week, and then fly into Cuzco and then uh, take a bus and train to Machu Picchu here, and then come fly from Cuzco back to Lima and have our day-long on the coast here before we fly back to the States. And our host in Peru will be Father Alex. He's a Jesuit priest who's, as far as I can tell, he's like a Mother Teresa. He's um, started this parish and provided, uh, built a clinic and all sorts of, there's an orphanage and a lot of different um, services that he provides for his people, and now he's turned his parish over to, he did such a great job and improved the health of the people, he's turned his parish over to this other priest, and he's moved to the, like even a, a poor part. So these are like um, really impoverished barrios in, uh, um, of this, this town, Arequipa. Arequipa is the second largest city of Peru. I think it's about 600,000, something like that, and then has all of these you know, really desperate um, uh, fringe neighborhoods, you know, where there's no services. It's, people are very impoverished. They, they live in little shanty shacks. So he's now building this new parish to help his people. And he's a, he's a fierce guitar player, too, so hopefully he'll serenade us at one point. And this kind of gives you a flavor, you know, it's high desert, so there's not uh, hardly any vegetation here. There's, some people have grown some trees just, you know, brick, um, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but here's Coca-Cola. They've got their foot into the impoverished neighborhood. Um, and then there's a lot of single moms raising families just trying to, you know, do laundry or, you know, sell things to, to make a living. And then I went there, it's been about five years now, I went on a medical mission with the, the person who's going to be our tour leader and we set up a clinic, and um, you know, it was just a really uh, amazing experience. And I don't, I don't have a whole lot of slides, but I just wanted to show a kind of a, a National Geographic view of <laughs> Machu Picchu <laughs> to entice you. Uh, one question about this that a lot of people have is about the altitude. So the Machu Picchu is at about, uh, I think it's about 8,000 feet. Cusco is at 11,000 feet. So people who have who struggle with from respiratory or cardiovascular um, diseases may find it challenging or, or not even uh, feasible to go. So um, 
we'll have there's some flyers out about Peru. We'll also have it on our website. Um, we'll have a, uh, a volunteer kind of an informa- another informational session on Peru at the end of June, hopefully here, and um, how you can get involved with any of this today is um, you can uh, volunteer to help build the organization. We're still doing a lot of things. We have Marilyn here who's volunteered for about a year now or maybe more with us. She does our books, and I don't know how to do that, so I'm very grateful. Um, And I mentioned Brian and Nanette. We have a lot of people who maybe don't go on the trips, or at least not on on this trip, um, who... Uh, we need to support the organization. So if you have any skills, we're also looking to start local IWA projects. Um, and there's, a, there's quite a few people now interested in that. So we just have to kind of get you together talking and figure out, you know, what's, what's the best way to proceed. And Mary's here who's done, I guess you're the... Uh, we have a small Socially engaged Buddhist group here at IMC. Um, you can always donate to either IWA or to one of our specific fundraisers uh, for the trip. Um, we'll be putting our donations towards Peru. Um, you can sign up for the trip, or hopefully we'll go back to Cambodia with Chapa next year. And then tell your uh, friends and family. And um, hope to see you on the road or uh, back here. Um, we do have five minutes left. I I don't know if there's uh, any other comments from the people on the the tours or people who have questions or if Gil, you want to say anything in closing words? I know there was uh, a lot of slides to digest in two hours, a lot of stories. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't know quite what to say. So much has been said, but I, I, <laughs> I love that. Oh yeah, the 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 blue pumpkin. Yay! It's a fabulous ice cream store in uh, Chain in yeah. Cambodia. Air conditioned, and they had a big couch in the one in Phnom Penh and. You could just lie back. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was really fun. But I, everything was just so different every moment. And um, driving was so amazing, or walking around, everything, seeing everything different. And the traffic was the most amazing thing, how it would never work here because people would be shooting each other. But there, people, you know, kind of, you know, you start out, they're starting into traffic, on a bicycle or a motorbike with trucks and everything coming this way and somehow they make it over to the right-hand side where they're supposed to be. And um, it's really true. Looking out the window was pretty scary. I realized that the double yellow line was only a suggestion. Um, 
It was a wonderfully organized trip, for, especially for a first trip. Um, we had all of the transportation provided by CHAPA, so every time we went to a different, um, for sightseeing especially, that's what we kind of prepared, um, we had the buses waiting for us, and, and we went together. So um, that's about it. I, I appreciate all the work that was put into it, and yeah. I just wanted to comment on Jeff. And um, I feel like I travel, I, you know, follow you all over the world. He just had such amazing patience because he not only had to do all the doctoring, but the worrying about how many vegetarian and, you know, the wait, uh, the waiting and the, you know, just all of this administrative stuff, which is a full-time job and a very aggravating job. And he did it with such grace and he just felt so available and yet, not in your face. It was it was uh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. It was amazing to work with. Thank you, Jeff. Mm. You're welcome. And I just um, I just have to say something about our two Dr. Tans. Um, I I I especially had an opportunity to work with your husband, and um, we sort of sat together up on the portico there overlooking the whole scene, um, Jeff, and he would um, see pediatric patients and I was seeing the moms. And um, so I got to see him a lot in action. Uh, amazing energy in this man. Um, I have never seen anything like that kind of energy, just constantly. And he didn't just come to this after being on a month's vacation. He comes right from work uh, and goes right into this and goes right back. So that was really, really inspiring to be with him. And I'd like to thank you. Um, Terry went to Cambodia the month before we arrived to do all the last-minute touches, and she found out that the hospital was not at all prepared for us. So it would have been a disaster. We would have shown up with our 170-plus and have you know no place to work, no organization, no tents, no, no toilets. <laughs> yeah, it was a, so she, uh, and she went all over the country kind of putting on these last touches. So thank you very much. Well, uh, it's 3 o'clock, right? We're finishing right on time. Thank you all for coming out today and sharing your uh, stories, uh, your attention. And um, thank you for uh, helping this organization uh, breathe and grow and live. It was born here and raised here. So we'll see you again uh, soon, hopefully. <laughs>